Well, this morning we continue nearing the end of our series in the book of Galatians. And one of the things we've seen week after week is how Paul is urging the Galatians to embrace the message of the gospel, what Christ has accomplished on their behalf, and to flesh out the implications of that gospel into every area of their life. According to Paul, the message of the gospel has vast implications for everything that we do and everything that we are. And one of the things that was happening among the Galatians is they thought that the gospel, believing in all that Christ had done on their behalf, was the way to become a Christian, to enter into a relationship with God. But then, in order to grow, in order to progress, in order to remain, you move on to relying upon yourself. You begin with radical grace, but then you move on to self-reliance, to keeping of the law. And that is the heresy, the false teaching that Paul is confronting throughout the book of Galatians. And Paul is teaching us the gospel is not just how you enter, but it's how you grow. As you embrace it more and more and more throughout your life and work out the implications in your life of the gospel. In chapter 5, we get to this place in the book where Paul is really talking about the practical implications of the truth of the gospel. And one of the questions that the Galatians had was, if we don't grow, if we don't change through the law, through keeping of the law, then how do we become what God has made us to be? How do we change? How do we grow? And that's the question Paul takes up in the passage that we're looking at this morning. Now, this is a very applicable subject for us. We all want to change in many different ways. We all have things in our life that we want to change and that we want to improve. We find ourselves in a culture that's really obsessed with improvement, right? We're a culture that loves to start uh, New Year's resolutions that never make it to February, right? We love to uh, watch shows about improvement, watching improvement, seeing people get improved, Maybe we can be improved. We watch Extreme Home Makeover, you improve your home. We watch Extreme Makeover Weight Loss Edition, you improve your appearance and your health. In fact, we, and I know none of us would watch these shows, right? You know, I I confess that I watch American Idol and Celebrity Apprentice. Confession works two ways. Who Who watches this? Who watches these shows, these Extreme Home Makeover? Thank you. Thank you very much. Confession's a two-way street here. So, if you were to go to bookstores, you would find that the largest section in bookstores like Barnes & Noble and Borders are the self-help section, right? We are obsessed with ways to improve ourselves and to change things in our life. I remember this being very true in my life. As a young man, I was a bit overweight, chubby, some might say. Um, and the most humiliating part of being chubby is that um, we had to shop for my blue jeans in the husky section. Did anybody have to endure this humiliation with me? It was awful. I mean, it was enough to be made fun of at school, but then 
you go into a store and there's a whole segregated section for people like you. So it was quite humiliating. But I wanted to change desperately. I wanted to improve. And one time I was looking at a magazine and I saw this advertisement, full-page advertisement, and it showed this torso. And it wasn't real, but it was drawn, and there were muscles all over the stomach. I mean, it wasn't a six-pack. It was a case. It was like muscles I had never seen. And the heading over the top said, everyone has muscles like this. Can you see yours? And I thought, I mean, I was roped in right there. No! And that's the whole problem with my life. Nobody can see that in me. And so I was determined they were going to see my muscles that look like that. And so, you know, I sent off, I got the video, I got all the materials and everything, and it arrives, and I realize, oh my goodness, I've got to do 10,000 sit-ups a day, and I've got to stop eating. (laughs) To change is actually going to take all of this? I'm going to have to actually change in order for this to happen? We all want to change. We all want to improve things about our life. Now, I can imagine this morning, we're probably in a lot of different places. I can imagine some of us this morning are at a place where we desperately want to change things about our life. And we've been trying. We've been using principles and strategies and willpower and effort, and we've tried everything that we know, and we're exhausted. We're discouraged. We want to change our marriage, and we've tried every principle and every book that's out there. We want to change our kids, and we've got what we thought was the best strategy you could ever imagine, but it doesn't work. We want to break some habit or addiction in our life, but yet everything that we try continues to own us, and we're exhausted. Others of us might be at a place where we're so beaten down by life, the discouragements and the difficulties of life have so beat us down, we just made it here. To think about changing, we can't imagine where we would even begin. We're just here. And maybe for others of us, we're at a place where we're almost ambivalent and indifferent to change altogether. And we're just here at church, because this is what you do. Well, the good news is, this passage speaks to all of us, no matter where we are, no matter where we need to change, because the scriptures over and over and over show us we are a people that desperately need to change. We are far from what God has made us to be. We are far from what we will one day be whenever we see Christ face to face. We need to change. The good news of this passage is, maybe it's bad news for you, you cannot change yourself. That can be a little disillusioning when you get to the end of your rope and you've tried everything and yet you haven't changed. Change is so very fleeting and slow and the moment you let up, you go right back to where you were. This passage this morning teaches us you cannot change yourself. But the good news is, is that God, by His grace, intends to change us through the power of His Holy Spirit. And that's what He does. 
That's the work of the Spirit. He sends the Spirit into our lives to work out the implications of the gospel, to change our hearts, to change our desires, because that's what we most need. We need new hearts. We need new desires. And that's what the Spirit brings. So in our passage, we'll see that in three basic things. First of all, you cannot change yourself. Next, the only way to change is through the Holy Spirit. He is the only one that can change us. And then finally, what part do we have to play? Do we? What is our role in this? That's what we'll see in our passage. Beginning at verse 16, you notice throughout this passage that Paul is contrasting two realities. Did you notice that? The whole passage is about setting up two opposite realities in the life of a believer. The Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, we'll get to that in a minute, and the sinful nature. Some of your translations, it might say flesh. And these two things are battling against one another. And if you are a believer, if you're in union with Christ, you have both of those realities at work in you. You see, whenever we become a Christian, it doesn't mean that we are instantly made perfect or that we no longer sin or that we no longer desire sin. None of those things are true. If you're honest about it, you know that's not true. The reality is is that whenever you become a Christian, you are pardoned for indwelling sin. You are no longer condemned, but sin remains. Sin is still powerful. And that's what Paul is talking about in referring to the sinful nature. You see, the reason that we can't change ourselves is because the problem is within us. The problem is in our nature. The sinful nature is that part of us, that old part of us, Paul often calls it the old man, the old self. It's that part of us that has fallen in sin and still delights in sin. And it remains in us. If you are a follower of Christ, you will battle sin until the day that you meet Him face to face. And the sinful nature, as Paul describes it here, is powerful. And it desires the opposite of what God wants. It's that part of us that is inclined to go away from Him. You see, our problem is not just that we sin. It's that we're sinners. It's a problem with our nature. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. The problem is a core problem. It's a heart problem. And it's a powerful problem. And because of that, you cannot change yourself. And one of the things that he uses to describe the sinful nature here in this passage is he keeps referring to the desires of the sinful nature. He personifies the sinful nature and says it has these powerful, driving desires. The Greek word there is even more specific than just desires. You know, maybe some of your translations say lusts, and it's not the best choice because lust kind of connotates just a bodily desire. But you see, the desires of the flesh are not just bodily desires, not just desires for appetite, but rather what the Greek word, which is epithumia, means is over-desires. In other words, inordinate desires, desires that have become ruling, that have become ultimate. It's closely related to idolatry. So the desires of the flesh are those desires that come to rule our lives. 
The desire for comfort is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with comfort. But whenever comfort rules you, it becomes an over-desire, a controlling desire. A desire for sex is a good thing. God made it after all. But whenever it begins to rule you and lead you to disobey God, it's become an over-desire. That's what Paul is saying here as he talks about the over-desires of the flesh, verse 16, 17, and verse 24. So the sinful nature has these powerful desires that are in absolute opposition to the Spirit, he says in verse 17. But then he goes on in verse 19 to talk about what are the results of those powerful desires in the sinful nature. In the NIV it says in verse 19, the acts of the sinful nature. The Greek actually says works, which is an important use of that term. Paul has been talking throughout the book of Galatians about relying upon works. Works as being summarized as all of our efforts to measure up to God and to earn His favor and to rely upon ourselves. And that is really the essence of the sinful nature. The sinful nature as it's, at its core wants to advance you. It wants to serve me. It wants to take from others to build me up. It wants to rely upon me and have my own standing. And so Paul here begins to list out what are the works of the sinful nature. In these over-desires, is it seeking these goals? What is it that is produced in our lives? How do you know that the sinful nature is at work? And it shows these different things. There's a few interesting things, I think, to notice about this list. First of all, it starts off with very classic sins that are very noticeable, right? These are sins that we very naturally say, oh yeah, that's bad. You know, a religious people, a person, a legalist, would very naturally lift up these sins and say, yeah, that's the bad stuff right there. He begins with sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, and even at the end, very much the same, drunkenness, orgies, he's actually talking about food orgies there, and the like. You see, the bookends there are things that we would naturally say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's sinful nature kind of stuff. But did you notice what's in the middle of this list? Look again. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. You see, all of those works are not necessarily actions. They're not necessarily things that you see. They're motivations. It's at the motivational level. And what it ends up doing is it ends up fracturing people. It divides us among one another. You see, those are not things that we would normally put on the same level as sexual immorality, debauchery, drunkenness. But Paul says they all share this in common. They flow from the sinful nature that has taken ordinary good desires and made them ultimate, made them to be something that I must have, that I'm seeking life in. That's what an idol is. So at the core of our sinful nature is a drive to find life apart from God, a reliance upon self, and it works itself out in all of these different ways. You see, the reason that we cannot change ourselves is that the problem is within our heart. The reason that we can't work out righteousness in our life is that we're broken on the inside. Trying to change yourself in the flesh is like trying to put out a brush fire with gasoline. 
doesn't work. It can't work. It only inflames it. And that's been Paul's argument all along. That's why the law cannot change you. So if we cannot change ourselves, then how is it that we're changed? How can we be changed? And this is the point of the whole passage for Paul. Look at verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So how do we not be owned by the sinful nature? Paul says this, live by the Spirit. That's it. That's how we change. That's how we grow. That's how we advance. That's how we remain. Live by the Spirit. In other words, depend upon the Spirit. Walk with Him. Be led by Him. He uses all these different phrases to describe this dependence upon the work of God in us through His Spirit. You notice as he's setting up this this contrast between the Spirit and the sinful nature, he says in verse 17, the sinful nature desires the opposite of the Spirit. Well, the same is true. The Holy Spirit desires what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want to do. Do you ever feel like there's a, a war inside of you? Do you ever feel like sometimes the things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing them? And the things that I want to do, really down deep inside of me, are so very hard to do. You ever feel schizophrenic? There's a good reason. Paul says, cheer up. The Holy Spirit is at war against your flesh. That's why a believer can sin, but not with peace. A believer can sin, but he's going to drive you crazy. It's the work of the Spirit going to war against the sinful nature in us. So what is it that the, sinful, uh, that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit desires? What is He after? Here's what He's after. To transform us into the image of Christ. That's the sum total of what He's up to. He wants to change us. He wants to take what Christ has accomplished for us and apply it and work it out into all the areas of our life. The work of the Holy Spirit is sanctification in us. It's changing us. It's making us like Christ. Sometimes we tend to think of the Holy Spirit, that what He's up to, that His work is just kind of like putting on a magic show, right? He's just coming to do you know, big dramatic things or, or He's coming to like, Tell us the secret of what path we're to take. That's not how being led by the Spirit is described here. Being led by the Spirit means being changed by Him on the inside. That's what He's after. That's what His desires are, to change us, to make us like Jesus. So how does He do that? How does He work this in us? Notice what Paul says in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. You see, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Sometimes we look at that, that uh, verse there, we've used that verse to think that it's talking about things that we ought to do. Now, in other places, that can be used that way. In fact, Paul, in the previous verses, says, love one another. That's a fulfillment of the law. Serve one another in love. He's called us to love. But it's not here giving us a list of things to do. 
You see, what he's showing us is the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, this is what he produces in us. Whenever the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and is at work, what is the result? He bears his fruit in us. Whenever the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, you know what happens? You know how you know that? You start to love people you haven't loved before. You start to forget about yourself and be concerned with other people. You stop kind of comparing yourself to other people and you're, you're instead drawn towards them. Whenever you see that happening, Holy Spirit's at work. Whenever you find yourself at peace in places that it really don't, doesn't make sense for you to be at peace, you find your heart at peace before the Lord, you find yourself at peace as you consider the future, the Holy Spirit's at work in your life. It's the fruit that He bears. You find yourself being faithful. You know, do you find yourself being a person that it's kind of hard to keep a commitment and make commitments altogether and do things I don't want to do? Well, whenever you start making commitments and keeping them and being faithful and controlling yourself, you know what's happening? The Holy Spirit's at work in you. He's producing His fruit. And it's not fruits. It's not plural. It's singular. Whenever He produces His fruit in our life, these are the results. All of these things are the results. We'd be tempted to say, well, I've got gentleness. But, you know, faithfulness, you know, being able to speak up and, and bring something to someone's attention, I've got to work on that fruit. Or perhaps you're naturally geared in the other way. You very naturally notice what's wrong in someone and you have a sense of justice in your heart and you're very quick to be able to notice and to speak into someone's life. But, you know, patience, I'm not very patient with people, so I need to work on that fruit. You see, there is a unity in the fruit. It's singular. Whenever Holy Spirit shows up, you measure His work by the lowest common denominator. You see, you might just be a person who's gentle by nature. Well, it's not fruit if you're gentle. It's fruit if you're faithful. The opposite is true. If you're someone that notices things that are wrong, you have a strong sense of justice, whenever you find yourself being patient with people that can't get it, that is the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Paul is drawing a contrast here. Do you see between these two lists that he gives us? You know, he's comparing the sinful nature and the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And as he talks about what is uh, produced, what is the result of the sinful nature, he calls it works. These are the works of the sinful nature. But then he moves on and he says, now this is the fruit of the Spirit. Now why do you think he describes those two in such different ways? Well, if you think about it, there's a pretty big difference between a work and a fruit, right? Ashley and I, we like, to, we like to grow things. I like to grow trees and shrubs, and she likes to grow things in the garden. And so usually on a day off, we're outside and we're working in the garden, doing something. And the thing, as we've gone along and learned about gardening, is that it's very different than building something. You know, building something is more like work. You know, the product that you get is more along with what is your expertise? How hard did you work? How much did you put into it? Right? That's a work. But fruit, you can't make things produce fruit. I mean, there's work involved, right? You want to make sure that the conditions are right, but once that's there, 
It's out of your hands. God's got to make it happen. And it's so slow. No, it's not sudden at all. You can't go out there and say, I want tomatoes today and make it happen. It's totally out of your hands. And Scripture throughout uses these organic kind of metaphors to describe how we're changed. You see, it's something that He does in us. That's why for us to change, it must be the work of the Spirit in us. That as He comes into our hearts, as He's welcomed in and has His way, goes to war against the sinful nature, He produces His fruit in your life. So I think... In thinking about the way that we change is entirely dependent upon the grace of another, it naturally brings an important question to mind, right? So, do I have a role to play in this? Does it have anything to do with me? Is it entirely passive? The answer is absolutely not. So, what is the role that we play if it's all His work? Look at what Paul says in verse 25. Since we live by the Spirit... That is what he's been saying the whole time. Life flows from the Spirit. So Paul says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. What does it mean to keep in step with the Spirit? Well, as we've talked about before, we looked in chapter 3, and one of Paul's main arguments there is, how did you receive the Spirit, Galatians? It was simply by hearing and embracing the gospel message. Paul says, okay, that's great. Now, how do you continue to receive the Spirit? How does He continue to work in you? Paul's answer, believing and embracing the the gospel more and more and more. That's how we're changed. That's what he says. So how do we keep in step with the Spirit? It's depending upon Him. It's believing the gospel, being renewed in the gospel. Now, there is a process to that. There is a way that that happens in us, that the gospel penetrates deeper and deeper into our life. It's called repentance and faith. Paul talks about this throughout his letters. In fact, the whole New Testament talks about repentance and faith as being two sides of the same coin. That is how the gospel gets renewed in our hearts. That's how we grow in our dependence upon the work of Christ. That's how we're changed, through a never-ending process of repentance and faith. Paul mentioned it in verse 24. He says, we've crucified the sinful nature. In other places, in in Ephesians and in Colossians, he says, put to death the sinful nature. Put to death all of those things that belong to what is the old man and put on the new. Be renewed. Live in light of who you now are. Those are all ways that Paul uses to describe repentance and faith. And oftentimes what comes along with it is obedience. Repentance, which is simply turning. It's simply turning from those things that we look to for life and for satisfaction. It's turning from our idols. It's dismantling the idols in our heart. And faith is attached to it. It is replacing it with faith in Christ all over again. And then new obedience is living now in light of who you are. It's living new. It's letting your life flow from what's true of you in the gospel. Repentance, faith, new obedience. Let me give you an example of this. It might be a little ethereal. 
give you an example from my life. And of course, this is entirely hypothetical, right? Let's say I notice a work of the sinful nature in my life, if that were to happen. And let's say it happened this morning, okay? Because it did. I noticed in that list there, he said, fits of rage. Well, let's say I lash out in anger against my children and my wife. So how would I apply the gospel? How would I repent, believe, and walk in new obedience? Well, this is how. I would go before the Lord, and I would say, Lord, you've seen it. I mean, I just lashed out before them. You've seen my fits of rage. But it's important not just to repent of the action, but to go deeper and to ask why. Why was I so angry there? And I would say before the Lord, I'm searching for life in my order, in my comfort, in my not being bothered. That's how it often works for me. That's what provokes anger in me. You see, comfort is a good thing. It's a God-given thing. But whenever it becomes an ultimate thing, rage pops out whenever it's interfered with. That's the dynamic in my life. So in repentance, I would say, Lord, I'm searching for life in comfort, in order, in people being in my kingdom and obeying my rules. But the truth is, and here's faith, I'm in your kingdom. You've taken my place. I have all the life and satisfaction that I could ever need in you. Life is not found in protecting my comfort. It's found in you. Renew me. Wash me. Change me. And empower me to now go and love my wife and kids. Be engaged with them. Pursue them. You see, that's repentance, faith, new obedience. It's not complicated. It is hard because it's like putting to death you, right? Keeping in step with the Spirit. There's a pastor I really like to listen to from time to time, and he calls this never-ending process of renewal, this three-step of repentance, faith, and new obedience. He calls it the gospel waltz because it's, it's kind of something that you don't just do one time or you just don't do occasionally. It's something you got to do hourly. Right? It's like a one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. It's how we dance with the Holy Spirit, right? Now, I've got another show for you. I wonder if you'll admit that you watch this. Dancing with the Stars. Does anybody watch Dancing with the Stars? A huh? few, few honest folk here practicing confession here. Uh, in Dancing with the Stars, if you haven't ever seen it, it's, it's pretty interesting. Here's what they do. They take a washed-up celebrity that is totally uncoordinated, has got two left feet, and they pair them with a professional dancer, somebody that's unbelievable. And most of the show is showing them in practice. And you're, welcome, you're watching them in practice, and the non-dancer is terrible. I mean, they can't do anything. They've got no rhythm or anything. And this professional is you know, trying to get them to follow along with them and everything. And you watch the practice, and you're like, this is going to be a disaster. I've got to tune in. Right? That's how they get you. I want to watch these people fall on their face. But you know what? You watch it and you get blown away because it's beautiful. You watch it and you see these two people dancing. You're like, oh my goodness. You know, sometimes you can't tell. You can't tell who's the dancer. 
And who's the klutz? Because they're working together. So how does that happen? How does somebody that cannot dance end up dancing all over the stage? Well, here's what they have to learn how to do. They have to learn how to follow the lead of the professional, right? They have to learn to respond to the movements of the professional dancer. They have to depend upon the strength of the professional dancer that's moving them around. Really, all they're doing is yielding themselves to them. It's active. They, I mean, they have to work hard at it, but really, they're letting themselves go in the arms of the professional. And whenever you see them on the dance floor, the professional is literally leading them all over. And what do you see? You see a beautiful dance. That's the picture of what Paul is teaching us here. Paul says, you want to change? You want to grow? You want to be all that God has made you to be? Keep in step with the Spirit. Follow His movements. Depend upon His strength at work work in you. He'll bear His fruit in you. You know what? It'll look like you're a professional at this thing. You'll at least be growing. You'll at least be changing. So the call for us is to dance with Him through a never-ending three-step process. Repentance, faith, new obedience, and then start it all over again. That's how we're changed. This morning we get to come to the table, which is a table where the Holy Spirit comes to minister to our hearts, to make the truths of the gospel more rich, more tangible to our lives. It's a table where we dance with Him because it it really involves all of those elements. We come in repentance saying, I need you. I have run after so many things in my life, but I need you. And it's a table where we are assured of His pardoning grace because that's what it's picturing here the broken body and the blood of our Savior. That's our only hope. And you know, at this table, as the Holy Spirit ministers to us, He empowers us to go and to live a new life all over again. So as we come to this table, let's begin our repentance by praying a prayer of confession together. You find in your bulletin.